0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 469 of the Survival Podcast. and I went on vacation, which means for me I took a weekend and and a Monday. Um, so, that's not much of a vacation, I guess, for most people, but for me, it was some good time off. And the uh, show's off to a late start today. It's 10, 10 a.m. as i begin recording this. So, I'll be probably publishing it around noon my time. Uh, the reason for that is I put a priority on taking care of all your emails that came in while I was gone. So, after getting through with 1,260 legitimate emails... I was ready to start recording today. Uh, by now, if you had any kind of tech tech support request in over the weekend, you should have heard back from me. If you did not, resend it. Sometimes when that many emails come in, something gets lost, filtered, etc. Alright, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, it's Tuesday, but it, it, we preempted Monday, so... Uh, Monday, traditionally, we do a show with your questions and feedback by email. That's what we're going to do today. So I have a whole bunch of them queued up and ready to go, uh, filtered out in my inbox. And i look some really great ones, some interesting ones, and some different ones. So we'll be hitting that in just a second. But before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our uh, sponsors and our other housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today, the Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. What's a Survival Seed Bank? Is it a whole bunch of seeds you go out and plant tomorrow? Absolutely not. You could. Uh, but it's really not what it's intended for. Just like you might buy mountain house pork chops or gulf shrimp or uh, providing pantry uh, long-term storage vegetables or something like that, and see that as a hedge for the future in case supplies become unavailable, you know that that food is treated in a certain way where it's going to be available to you for a very, very long time and remain viable and usable for a long time. That's what a survival seed bank is. It's a store of seeds designed for that long-term storage aspect Check that out. You'll find them on our website like you will the rest of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number two is the is uh, silverandgoldshop.com, run by the wonderful, in, in the audience's own words, Mary Beth Maidmont, who works really hard to make sure that she takes care of you guys on every order that you have. Some really unique and really cool silver and gold products. And remember, I think silver and gold should make up between 5 and 10% of your savings uh, for the future as a hedge against what our government may do to destroy the value of our money next up today I want to remind you guys we're going to be having a contest this week just like last week Uh, people want to know are you going to announce the winners of the seeds I don't really usually announce winners because I don't like to give out people's last names and it would lower participation but five people won seed uh, packs last week I heard back from Meredith they're all getting shipped out uh, this morning so you guys are all hooked up and getting your seeds. This week, uh, I'll try to get out today, if not tomorrow, a review of the uh, the, uh, the Soil Cube. And we'll be giving away two of those on Friday this week. So two Soil Cubes going out. And I'll do something again from Listener Contest or something else uh, to kind of sweeten the pie a little bit. Uh, next up, make sure you get in touch with us on all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all that good stuff. Links on the site, the survivalpodcast.com to get there. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, 20 videos that are available nowhere else uh, by me on different things, and uh, great discounts to our, uh, our sponsors and some other companies that would like to be sponsors, but frankly, we don't have room for any more sponsors right now. Uh, We have a tremendous amount of discounts that are available. There's over $100 worth of free uh, instantly downloadable eBooks that are available to you. Great stuff. Instant return of investment. And, of course, support the show at 20 cents an episode. That's two dimes every time I get on the air and do the show for you. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic. Again, we're going to be talking about uh, your questions your feedback things that have come in to be by email remember the way to do that put in the subject line question for Jack even if it's a link to an article or something like that you want me to take a look at and comment on question for Jack in the subject line email that to Jack at the survival com again Jack at the survival com and you might hear your question or your suggestion on the air here okay the first question is one of those tough ones you know that are, are hard to really answer Um... But uh it says, please withhold my name, so I won't even give the first name uh, of this person out. But it says, I have a question for you if you can fit into an episode. Is there any specific advice or tips you would give to people who are disabled and living with restricted mobility, dependent on very fixed, limited incomes because of their health, who are uh, living without relatives or friends in their area, especially preppers that have been disabled, uh, can take to be prepared as well? Like I said, that's a tough question. So, You've got a disabled individual on a limited income with limited mobility and doesn't have anybody really around them to help, that's bad enough, isn't it? Um it really is. Whether you've got you know somebody uh somebody uh whether you've got a disaster or not, it's it's a difficult situation to be in. So number one, my heart goes out to you, bud. Um but This is part of why I don't get as big into maybe the tactical badass stuff that a lot of people seem to want me to do. This is why I don't start talking about how everybody needs to go out and strap, you know, a 40 pound pack on their back and hike 10 miles a day. Because I try to make most of the advice that I give you suitable for everyone anyway, whether you happen to be an older person or a person with a disability or some type of other limitation. Uh, when I say eat where you store and store where you eat, that's something that anybody can do, even with a limited income. In fact, I would tell you it's incumbent upon you to do that more. So whatever income you have, you're, you're somehow providing yourself with food, so make sure that you Start doing at least some copy canning, even if it takes you two years to get up a 30-day extra supply. Uh, Start yesterday is the best way I can describe that. For a lot of people that are disabled, there are options when it comes to let's say gardening. Um, there are things that can be done with. Now you might need to get some help and see if there's some help available locally to maybe come out and build a couple uh, beds for you. You know, four four foot by four foot beds that are up on a pedestal. So if you're in a wheelchair, you can run a wheelchair right up. To, I, I think that may be one of the most therapeutic things that a human being can do if they're in a disabled state. Now, if you're disabled beyond that, I, I. You know, obviously you can't do that, but if you can, then I think it's really a very empowering thing. And I think that the mental aspects uh, of things are just as important to you as some of the physical aspects. Uh, if you're in that disabled state, people in a disabled state either tend to achieve things that we would think would be impossible for them, or they tend to kind of slide down into a dark area. And they don't really tend to stay in the kind of a middle, that's all right, ground the way that a lot of society does, which I think is bad for a lot of society, but it's worse for somebody with a disability because it tends to gravitate eventually toward that darker area. So I think you need to find something beyond prepping. You need to find something that you can do that you find empowering and liberating beyond your your limitation and your disability. Once you do that, I think you might find a whole new world opening up to the other things that you may want to do for prepping and for anything else in life. So... I don't know what that maybe is for the individual. I can't ever tell an individual what to do, but that's that's another thing. The other thing is the basic stuff: having a blackout kit, having some basic food stored up. um, You know, with with, even with most disabilities, having some means of defense. uh, these are all things that you can do whether you're disabled or not. Uh, again, I don't want to belittle anybody's disability. You might be disabled further than I'm thinking, and maybe some of these things are really difficult. But if you're that far, then you probably have some type of caregiver or helper, and you may need to bring them in. That you there's some things you want to just be prepared for. And actually, I think that a lot of times people are afraid to talk about being a prepper. I think for a person in this situation, it might be a little bit easier because all you have to say is, "What if there's a blackout, a hurricane, a tornado, whatever?" I just, you know, obviously, I'm dependent on all this stuff. We need to make sure that there's a little bit of extra, right? And that's good. so if whatever caregiver you have, if there is anybody, it would be helpful. I will also say, reach out and see what's available. You don't have a family member that does this or anything like that. Now, see what's available from the government, from uh, local charities, whatever, to help in your unique situation. Sorry, that's the best I can do. Uh, It really is. It's not something I've ever had to personally deal with, and I don't run my mouth about things that I don't ever actually have practical experience with. I just give you my opinion and some ideas. Uh, Let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, Paul sent me uh, a link to an article on TacticalLife.com. That's actually Tactical-Life.com. It's an article uh, on combat handguns, and it's called Justified Shooting Aftermath by Masada Yub. And uh, I think it's an absolutely outstanding article. And what it's about is having a plan in place. So let's say that one night you're on your way back to your car in a parking lot and somebody holds you up or somebody holds up uh, somebody trying to get into a vehicle or somebody breaks into your house and as you're getting home you catch them in the act. And one way or another the situation turns lethal and you pull your weapon, you discharge it, and you kill the bad guy. And when local law enforcement arrives, instead of patting on you on the back and apologizing that they weren't there sooner to help you with the situation, they take you into custody as a matter of uh, procedure or because something they didn't like about it. One way or another, uh, you're now in custody, and your family has to try to get you out. And he has a plan that he thinks we should all put in place uh, that will help us in the event of that situation. Uh, Let me read... Uh, A little bit of it for you. Important questions. My family has a clear chain of command for a post-incident response. This is important because you do not want wife and mother in law who really can't stand each other arguing about what to do and how to do it while their son is caught in limbo and nobody is able to make a decision as to what to do. My family is willing to pool resources in order to help in this matter. An attorney costs this, a bondsman costs that, one person may have enough for most of the cost of one but not the other. And it is in addition to who decides which goes with, with which goes with which to go with Will they have resources to go with that decision? My family has a clear understanding of who is going to take care of the kids for the next 72 hours. Call lawyers. Be available to run around the banks, uh, lawyers, the jail, the court, and other places when needed uh, by those running the show. My family has powers of attorney signed, giving each other or trusted third-party access to financial medical records and authority to encumber property and make financial withdrawals, cash-in life insurance policies and financial instruments, make medical decisions and other such important matters in the event I or another person are incarcerated. can't You can't cash in your 401K while you're in jail. So what he's saying is you may be in jail and you may be in the wrong place and you might have a judge set your bond at, You know, let's say $100,000. Well, generally, you'll need 10% to get out. This isn't about proving whether you're guilty or innocent. This is about getting out of jail so you can see to uh, the preparation for a trial if they choose to prosecute you. So you need 10 grand. Now, unless you have 10 grand just lying around the house, you know, um, you've got a problem. And most husbands and wives would just say, well, the other person's in charge. What if you were in an altercation, your wife's been injured, and she's in the hospital, and you're in jail? Who's the next person in the chain of command? Do they have access to your finances? Can they get to your finances when your wife is uh, on life support and you're in prison? Don't you really want to get out and go see her? Now, in, in a lot of states like Texas, unless it, it's, it's a clear-cut thing, this stuff's not going to happen, but it always could happen. And that's what prepping is all about. That's why I think this is an outstanding article, and it opens up a lot of other things. And maybe this plan is bigger than a post-justified shooting plan. Maybe it's also a unfortunate incarceration plan, where a person happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they are, you know, have something kind of pinned to them, and you need to get them out of jail. Uh, or maybe it's even somebody that went to jail for something that maybe yeah, they should have went to jail for, but you also need to deal with the situation now. Having this kind of a plan in place is probably a good idea because you never know when someone's going to be plucked out of the middle, and if that person happens to be the primary leader of a group, a family group, you've got a real problem if there's not a plan of what to do because the person that's usually there to make the decisions is now not available. And the whole, you know, you'll be able to talk to somebody when they're in jail, don't, don't bet on it. Uh, we have a family friend who was thrown in jail for a DUI, and the person that was thrown in jail did it. I mean, it's, it's not a, you know, he was framed or any type of thing like that. But um, the uh, no one was actually able to talk to that person except for one phone. They gave him this one phone call, and he called his parents just to let them know what was going on and try to get some help and use them as the, the go-between. He, he got to talk to one person over an entire long weekend and spent three days in jail uh, for a DUI. Because he was in some po-dunk town where the, the sheriff and the judge just didn't like the fact that it was an outsider with a DUI. Now, I'm not saying what he did was right. I'm just saying that's what happened. And we need to be prepared for those realities. And you never know where you're going to be when something happens like that. Boy, you need a plan like this in the place if you travel outside the country, don't you? you, you I mean, imagine trying to get somebody out of a Mexican jail. Or a Peruvian jail. Or, you know, a Turkish jail. So I think this is a great plan. I'm going to put a link to the main article uh, uh, from today's uh, post and show notes. Uh, but make sure you check this out and think about how this applies to you and your family. Interesting one here. Uh, guy's name is Ryan. Ryan says he lives in, uh, let's just say, the north-central United States. Okay. Uh, his brother lives about 15 miles away and has seven and a half acres he purchased four years ago. Most of his land is in woods, but he went and thinned in a lot of it out. Uh, last year, we noticed that he has what looks like elderberries growing all over the place. Dude, those make such awesome wine, by the way. Uh, elderberries make good jelly. The flowers make, uh, fried up, make really awesome fritters. But God, do elderberries make awesome wine. So consider yourself lucky. Or, uh, mixed with some, uh, some honey. They make a, uh, a dark, uh, mead. I guess you'd call it a piment, actually. That is just amazing. Uh, now this year, we noticed he has wild blueberries growing everywhere. We can't walk anywhere in the woods uh, without stepping on either elderberries or blueberries. Nice problem to have, right? My question is, how can I transplant and get these berries to grow on my property? I have 1.5 acres uh, yard bordering woods. Can I collect seeds with the blueberries or do I need to actually transport the plants? And how can I get it to spread? Thanks for all the good work you do, Jack. Uh, and then he's got a link to an article that talks about growing lowbush blueberries from seed. Here's what I would tell you. I wouldn't do it. There's there's two things you can do here. One, the guy's got an abundance. So if you lose a plant or two, it's not that big a deal. Uh, the best time to dig these plants up would be right after they go dormant in the fall. Uh, so you, what you can do is pick out some bushes you want to dig up. Smaller the better because they're going to have smaller root systems. Just go in, in the fall, right after the leaves turn red and fall off, dig them up, wrap the roots in, in dirt and uh, burlap, Keep them somewhere cool through the winter so that they stay dormant. That's the big thing you want. You want these things to stay dormant through the winter. Very early spring, before it's really time for them to start putting on buds and everything, go ahead and plant them into the ground. You could probably go ahead and just plant them into the ground at your at your location right away is probably the best way to do this. Um, don't water them. Make sure that you do this at a time again when the plant has gone dormant is the best time to do this. Uh, plant them, and they should, let's say you should get... Oh, I don't know, about 80% of them should take for you if you do that. Another option you have is by rooting branches. This is going to be much quicker than seeds as well. What you'll want to do here is you'll get a little uh, like burlap or cloth or even plastic and fill it with good quality potting soil. Go to a bush that's doing really well. You want to do this in the spring. Scrape off the bark on the bottom side of one of the branches, Okay. Wrap the, uh, the cloth full of dirt around the place that you've, you've scraped off. And when you scrape it off, coat it with some rooting compound. And leave that throughout uh, a good part of the growing season. You'll have to kind of come back once in a while keep that soil moist and all. But what should happen is the, the branch itself should start to grow roots. And by the end of the season and coming into spring next year, and you can probably do this all through the summer, you can probably do this now, and you'll get some rooting so that by next season, when that branch is starting to bud out and it's got a good root system, you just cut it off and put it in the ground and basically you've cloned the plant. And you've left the primary root system back at your brother's place. So that's another way you can do this. With elderberries, you can grow them from seed. They're a pretty fast grower. You should get into production by the second to third year anyway. But I think you'll have an awful lot of... Um, success with those by digging up the root systems and transplanting them. They'll die to the ground, though, a lot of times. So what you need to do is mark the plants now that you want to dig up when they die back. And when they die back, dig up their root balls, plant the root balls in the winter. They should take for you at about 80% in the spring. All of that's going to be much faster getting you into some level of production than trying to grow these plants from seeds. You can do it, it's just going to take, you're going to be looking at five years before you have a really productive system. Where if you do it with the methods I just gave you, you could probably shortcut that to about two years. So that's three years back for doing things a little bit different. Let's take another one. Okay, Chris sends us an email, actually it's Greg, so I don't know why I call him Chris, but Greg sends us an email, says he was watching the History Channel last night about a show about cowboys. It seems that many died from blood poisoning and gangrene. Are there some natural remedies for these and current supplies that we should have on hand as a prepper? Thanks. A couple things about this, Greg, and everybody else. Number one, um, gangrene's bad stuff, and the best way to not uh, lose limbs or die from gangrene is to not get it in the first place. Uh, blood poisoning... We'll get to that one in a second. Um, so gangrene is generally an infection that goes to another level where the skin actually and the flesh and the bone in the area begins to rot due to a lack of blood uh, to that area. What happens is, is as the tissue dies, blood doesn't get there and, it, and the, the tissue dies. The blood, because there's no blood, no oxygen getting there, because of the bacterial infection, uh, it's dying. Literally rotting is just like you killed. You cut a guy's leg off, right? And you throw his leg out in the woods. It'll rot. That's happening while it's still attached to your body. That's what gangrene is. Um, in a hospital, once you have gangrene on something, it's bad. So home remedies, ugh, tough, right? About the only thing I think you could try if you were like really isolated, if you get your hands on them, are maggots. And this sounds gross, but this has even been done in hospitals now. Maggots will only eat dead flesh. And if you actually were to place a large volume of maggots under a bandage on a gangrenous wound, as long as there's enough of them to eat faster than the gangrene spreading, they'll actually eat out all of the gangrene, um, and leave a perfectly clean wound. And they will not feed on, um, your, you know, viable flesh. I know it's gross, but it's been done. Now you have to use, you know, maggots, not something like bob, you know, blowflies. It'll climb in and you just make the situation worse. So you have to be aware what you're doing there. Boy, that's a last-ditch effort, though. And in many cases, any gangrene infection all results in amputation. So that's a tough one. The other one, now, blood poisoning. A lot of times blood poisoning starts out as an infection, and that infection per- perhaps doesn't go gangrene, but it gets very, very bad, very, very bad abscess infection from a wound on the body. Now, what happens is over time, some of that inflection, infection, instead of coming out of the wound in pus, is actually forced into the blood, and it begins to travel through the blood, and it begins to inf- infect the blood supply and infect the body. When that happens, now you've got a blood poisoning issue. So, the best way to deal with that is to draw the infection out of the wound. Now, uh, probably the best... Home remedy, if you want to call it that, for drawing from a wound would involve the use of, and maybe some other herbs that are available, but calendula uh, and comfrey uh, made into a poultice uh, and if, if taken to the extreme, made into a good salve will be a great drawing agent. So that's not really treating the blood poisoning. It's preventing the, the localized uh, wound that's infected from spreading into the blood. And I'm not a a doctor. I'm doing the best I can with a fairly tough medical question here. But the last thing that I'll point out is at the time that these cowboys were riding around, you know, right after the Civil War, we hadn't even got to a point yet where doctors knew to always wash their hands between patients. There was a lot of that that was done because of a lack of hygiene. So even in a shit at the fan situation, as long as you have water, hygiene goes a long way. So cleaning a wound... Uh, getting dirt out of it, washing your hands, all of that stuff goes a long way to preventing a lot of these things because can you get gangrene today? Sure you can, it happens all the time. Uh, but it's generally with people with, with compromised circulatory systems like diabetics. right? So usually there has to be some aggravating circumstance. Back in the, the time that these guys were out there, a lot of these guys probably died of tetanus. And they thought it was blood poisoning because they stepped on some, you know, a, a spike or something that stabbed them in the foot. There was no such thing as a tetanus shot. Right? So, a lot of this stuff has been mitigated by hygiene and, and pra- you know, good pra- good first aid practices. So, that's what I'm going to advise you. But that's the best I can do again with a fairly tough medical question. And uh, don't bet your life on my advice, po- folks. Double check that one. That's the best I can do for you. Let's take another one. This is one I almost didn't do. It comes from David. And the reason I didn't almost do it is because I know I can get off on a tangent here. And I can make a whole episode out of this, which I just did, which is what you know, kind of prompted. It. But it comes from a guy named David. And David said he listened to 456, which is where I talk of episode 456, where I talk about personal brand and building your own business and things like that. And uh, this guy's 49, retired from GM, now working uh, in asphalt business through a family thing. He's passionate about running and would like to, to do a podcast on running and training for marathons and other running ideas. Here's the question that I just go, did you, you said you listened, but did you listen? How can I make money at this? Can you explain the basics of what it takes to make a podcast and how to get yourself on the air? Can you just upload a podcast to iTunes? And give some ideas. All right, so he wants to know how to make money and he wants to know how to do a podcast. Podcasting, if you want to know, there's so much information out there that anybody can figure it out. But basically, the basics are you need a way to record. You need some type of tool for editing because you're going to have to do some editing, especially in your first shows. You're going to have to do probably more editing than, than you do in your later shows. If you want to record shows and bring guests on, you're going to want to set up Skype. And my new recording medium that I think is the greatest in the world for Skype is called Pamela. So you need to buy that. Uh, you need to get a web host. HostGator is a good place to start. You need to think if it's going to grow. You're going to grow beyond basic hosting, though, and you're going to need some kind of virtual private server or uh, dedicated server. That's down the road. That's year down the road minimum, so don't worry. Go with a basic package uh, right up front. And you really need to set up a blog, and you need to use, I use WordPress, that can be installed with something called cPanel that comes with your hosting in a matter of seconds. If you want it to look professional, you want to get a good designer to do a basic WordPress theme that's custom for you, that'll cost you three or 400 bucks, and then you just need to go at it. Now, as far as how do you make money with a podcast on running? I don't know. I mean, isn't there a company called Nike that spends billions of dollars every year uh, to put their logo on people that play golf isn't a big segment that they have. Runners, don't you think? If ten or twenty thousand people that were passionate about running were listening to you and paying attention to you, that there just might be somebody somewhere that would want to do business with you so they could reach your market. So that's you know that's one thing. But here's what I really have to say about this: If you're passionate, if you work your freaking Ass off, and if you're good, that's the th- you have to be good. I can't, I'm not i am going to tell you know. This would be like telling a little kid that's uh, five foot, you know, five foot tall and uh, 17 years old, so he's not gonna grow much more than five feet. That can barely hit the rim with a basketball. Sure, you can play in the NBA. I, you know, I don't know. You probably aren't gonna play in high school. You probably didn't play in high school, right? You're getting ready to graduate. And you, maybe this is not the thing for you. But if you're good. If you're good when it comes to running, if you're good when it comes to communicating about running, if you can make people interested that wouldn't otherwise be interested, if you can put together a program for people that aren't runners that would like to be runners, that would become runners. So what I'm saying there is, it's really easy to just say, well, just get out and start running. Really? Okay, so the guy's 315 pounds, completely out of shape, and his doctor says, no way. How do you get him to be a runner? Where do you start? What is the program of progression? I mean, you're talking about fitness, exercise, and nutrition. Probably the biggest consumer market on the planet Earth. Do it! You'll figure out how to monetize it. And I'm going to tell you this right now. Anybody that sends me a question like this, you're going to get the same answer. Freaking do it. I don't care if your passion is cleaning pools. I guarantee you... HTH will want to do business with you if 20,000 people that clean pools pay attention to what you're saying and you might find a completely unique revenue model my revenue model of the member support brigade did I launch survival podcast and say one day I'll have 10,000 members and about 10% of them will support the show and I'll have this annual program and I'll make these deals with advertisers and I'll make these deals with supporters and I'll do the no I had no freaking idea. You build the community, right? This is the, this is the big thing. You build the community, and then your community's been built around you and your passion, so they have loyalty to you. Then you look to your community and say, how can I better serve this community than I'm doing right now? Then you take that level of better service, and you offer it to them for some small fee. So you give everything you can think of up front for free. Everything. And only at the time that you've built a community that believes you're worthy of their participation, will you even be able to see what the next level of service is? And if 10% of 10 or 20,000 people believe that you're worth supporting at some level, you have a viable business at that point. And where it goes from there is up to you. It could become a multi-million dollar concern, or it can stay a small concern that just serves the community. It's your choice. But never, when you get there, never freaking forget Never forget who brought you to the dance. Never forget the people that were there with you when you were one-ass clown, like I was, with a recorder, driving around in a car, running your mouth about things. Never forget those people. People have asked me, I just did an interview for, for a, 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 a magazine. I said, what do you think of outsourcing You know, things like support? And I said, I cannot outsource my support until I find somebody that loves my audience as much as I do. When I find a person that can love my audience... That I can have someone help me with support. Until then, I have to do it. Because I dearly love my audience. Because they've given me everything I have. Take that attitude. Do it in running. Do it in hopscotch. Okay? You know? Do it in cleaning pools. Do it in gardening. Do it in cooking. Do it in walking freaking dogs. I don't care what it is. It doesn't even freaking matter. But if you aren't really passionate... Don't bother. Don't waste your time and don't waste anybody else's time because all you're going to do is get the first couple dozen people that give you a shot excited and then you're going to get bored and you're going to go do something else. And then those people are going to be like, damn, I wish he would have kept doing that. I really liked him. And those were the beginning of your 1,000 true fans. And there's an article out there. I'll find it again today for you guys. You can read called 1,000 True Fans. And if you have that, you have a viable business today. That's all you need is 1,000 people that really like what you're doing and are willing to support it. A true fan is somebody that would spend one day's salary on you a year. Just one day a year. Well, if you have a 1,000 of those, that's three annual salaries. That pays business expenses. That pays the additional taxes you're going to pay. And it leaves you with about a salary and a half to do what you love. Now, it's up to you whether you grow it from there. But that's the base. All right, let's go ahead and take another question before I just keep going off on this one. Uh, one other thing. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. I have jackspirco.com and jackspirco.net, and there's not really anything of any consequence in either one of them right now. What I'm really thinking about doing, though, is putting up a new blog. and blogging for five minutes a day on business by video. No editing, no nothing. Just right here in my office when I get done with the Survival Podcast, whatever came to my mind that day about running a business, five minutes of it, boom, throw it on YouTube, throw it on the blog. If you'd like to see that comment in today's uh, show notes, let me know you'd like to see that. Uh, For those of you that would worry it would take away from TSP, it wouldn't because, again, it's five minutes of just... It's like an extension of this show, but it's specific to business, and maybe it can help people. So let me know if you're interested in that, and I'll take another question. So Daniel sent this in, and a couple other people sent similar things in. And... A while ago, somebody asked me if there was any place in the United States where there was no taxes, maybe other than federal income tax, where there was no property tax, there was no existence tax, there was no occupational privilege tax, but the big one was property tax. And it turns out there are parts of Alaska where there are no property taxes. There's uh, nothing. There's a short little article the guy sent me, and uh, let me read this to you. Alaska property tax is applicable only in a small portion of the landmass, although it is the largest state in the United States. There are seventeen boroughs in the state of Alaska, out of which only thirteen impose for property tax. Moreover, property taxes in Alaska are paid by the residents of only twelve cities and twenty five municipalities. The list of these twenty five municipalities can be had from the Directory of Taxing Jurisdictions. Thus Alaska is a unique state in the United States where property tax is not levied on a large portion of the landmass. The state of Alaska has a number of communities, and many of these are still not incorporated. Of 162 incorporated municipalities, 17 are incorporated into boroughs, while the remaining 145 are incorporated as cities. The smaller incorporated municipalities prefer sales tax to property tax because they do not have a large tax base to support the property tax. The unincorporated municipalities of the state are not authorized legally to levy a tax. So if you're an unincorporated municipality... They can't even tax you if they want to. In order to assess the amount of property tax, the budget requirements for a municipality are determined first, and then all sources of revenue are identified. The difference in revenue, resources, and budget amount... So in other words, I'll stop here, but basically what they're saying is if a city does want to tax you in Alaska, the way they have to do it is they have to look at all the other sources of revenue they have, what their budget is, is the budget reasonable, and then only the the gap between what they want and what they have can be assessed as property tax, and then that's levied against all the properties out there as value. That's actually not very unique. That's the way a lot of places levy their property taxes, but there's no limit on how much they want to spend. So they just keep jacking the property taxes to make up the Delta. But that's interesting. So I guess if you're willing to live in the Great White North, you can escape taxation except for federal. And I bet you if you lived in some places up there, even if you had some local income that was done on a handshake and a cash basis, you could just kind of disappear altogether if you wanted to. It's nice to know that there's still a few places like that out there. If anybody knows of any other places other than Alaska where there are no property taxes, again, please let me know. Let's take another question. Interesting one. Question on gray water. Uh, this comes from Don. Don says, for a second, sorry for the second email today, but I had a question about using gray water for irrigation. I'm sure there's an effect, but I wanted your take on using gray water and antibacterial soap residue. I've seen on the uh, EuroWeb experts talking about the use, and he has experts in quotes. <laughs> nice. Uh, use of antibacterial soaps and their effect on natural bacterial levels in streams and rivers. I would think uh, that using these soaps and gray water uh, that results could affect the natural bacteria in the soil, just wanted your take on using any item with an antibacterial component well let 's look at something here. I think that you 're definitely right. If you have something that is an antibacterial and you apply it to an area, the antibacterial starts to kill bacteria, uh, good and bad, so that 's a good thing for us because we keep down the growth of bad bacteria in our homes or on our hands, Uh, and then the bad thing for the soil if we're using gray water for irrigation because we're putting this component into the soil, and of course the bacterial functionality and fungal functionality in the soil is the beginning of the life web in the soil. So we have the potential to do severe harm to our soil with enough antibacterial action. The question you have to ask is if you use an antibacterial soap to wash your hands, but your gray water is from washing machine discharge, um, discharge from your um, your dishwasher and drainage, and you know there's only a little bit in there. It's probably not enough to do any real harm because it's dispersed amongst all this other stuff. So it's probably not a huge concern for the individual homeowner. I think the reason it has an effect on our groundwater is because there's so much of it combined being dumped. Because now look outside of your home, and even if you live kind of remote, think about a one-square-mile area around you. And Unless you're in those beautiful places in Alaska, you're probably thinking about a crap ton of people. So now think about a 10-square-mile area around you, and how much antibacterial crap is going into our streams and rivers. The other question is do we need an antibacterial soap? This just made me think of a, uh, something I saw in 2020 a long time ago. It was a John Stossel thing. And he was talking, and this was before the swine flu, but he was talking about this big new rage back then. I'd say this was probably around 1999 or 2001, somewhere in that area, of antibacterial gels. You know, like they were putting everywhere when the flu was going on. This is when they kind of first came out. And everybody, you know, moms are starting to carry them in their purse. And they put it on their hands. And then, little Johnny, come here after you play. And they put this antibacterial gel on your hands. And Is it effective? So what they did is they took a group of people. They had one person who didn't wash their hands at all. They had one person that used this antibacterial gel. They had one person that used soap and water to wash their hands, they had one person that used plain water to wash their hands, and they had one person that used um, uh, antibacterial soap to wash their hands. They had each person, you know, touch like doorknobs and, and, and swing sets and, and uh, elevator buttons and just like, you know, flush a toilet in a public restroom and touch the door for that. And they had everybody touch the same stuff. And then everybody either didn't or did treat their hands accordingly. The person that didn't treat their hands then touched this, uh, you know, growth gel in a petri dish, and they incubated it for 48 hours, and it was the most disgusting thing you've ever seen. There were all kinds of bacterial colonies uh, growing there. The person that used the antibacterial gel had one tiny speck, and the guy said this is inconsequential. You probably have that much bacteria on your hands. Yeah, you know, he said basically could have gotten that between the time that you know from settling from the air. Uh, just at the right spot on the fingers when he touched the gel between the time they were done with that and maybe something landing on them. Or he said, this honestly could be we opened the thing and it landed in the gel before the guy touched it. You know, because we were in a clean room when we did it. So this is inconsequential. It works. Yay, it works. Well, then they took the guy that used plain soap and water. He had nothing, right? The guy with the antibacterial soap had nothing. And the guy with plain water had one tiny little colony just like the guy with the gel. And what does this tell us? That it's more about surface cleaning of the hands to get this crap off of you than any antibacterial technology. So I would say if you're worried about it, long answer short, and just as this for everybody's edification with you know what you need for hygiene in your home, because we talked about that earlier, you don't necessarily need antibacterial. Uh, soap is going to have a very antibacterial effect when it's applied directly, but as it's diluted down, as long as it's not an antibacterial soap with additional additives, that's going to dilute very, very quickly. So there you go. Best I can do on that one for you. Let's go ahead and take another question. Here's an interesting one. I thought it might help people, so I'll just blow through it because I'm not really familiar with the water remediation thing as part of a building uh, issue. But uh, this guy, this comes from, uh, I won't say his name because I don't know if he wants me to, but he has a blog that's pretty popular. And he says, uh, we recently purchased a home. Uh, The prior owner uh, had started uh, an addition but didn't get permits. We're in the process of getting authorization to complete the addition from the township. One of the issues is water remediation. Usually they uh, require a drain field to build in order to handle the rainwater. I discussed with the township whether they would consider a 1,500 to to 25,000-gallon reservoir tank uh, and it might be 2500 maybe you put an additional zero on there by accident, as a sufficient option. Something I already wanted to install, the township zoning officer is considering my request and believes they might have an acceptable alternative to the drain field. So basically, if you live in a place where you're doing an addition and they want you to put a drain field in, for the same cost you may be able to put in an underground cistern, uh, which will, of course, hold back a great deal of the water for use on the property, and that might negate the need for the drain field. Now, water remediation is usually about keeping water clean. So it's not so much holding it back, so it's putting it through that drain field as a filtering system. So what they say is, now, I put an addition on my home, and instead of having nice, soft earth for the water to hit and permeate through, now it hits a roof. And, of course, the roof all channels it down and puts excessive runoff on the part of the yard that the water does hit. One house, no big deal. A thousand houses in a few acres in a big suburban uh, sprawl, uh, now we have a massive amount of the surface area that was available to deal with the water no longer available. So now the water is carrying a lot more debris, and it's a lot less filtered as it goes wherever it's going. So the solution, put in a drain field hold the water back in a reservoir, and use it for irrigation purposes, and slow its dispersal, same effect. So, good one. Uh, and if you're coming to that situation, maybe it's something you want to ask your township or zoning authority if you can do. And, of course, you'll also be prepping at the same time. Let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, this article comes from Rob, and it says, another good reason to be debt-free. And then when I click on the link, I go to CNN, and I get a story from July 2nd that Schwarzenegger, uh, governor of California, uh, he said, we may have to pay minimum wage, right? So um, basically what they're saying is that the state doesn't have a budget. There is no budget. And if there's no budget by the end of July, because states got this huge budget gap and they're out of freaking money, and by the Constitution of uh, the state, they can't just keep running that way. They're not like the federal government, just phone up the Fed and say, hey, Ben, send us a trillion dollars, and they get a trillion dollars. It doesn't work that way for a state. So state's near bankrupt. So what Schwarzenegger says is if we don't get a budget by the end of July, if we don't fix this problem, then all the state workers are going to go to minimum wage and get seven twenty five an hour. And let me read a little bit of it to you. Um this is a quote. These preparations for the prospect of not, ha- of not having a budget passed this month, said Linnell Jolly of the California Department of Personal Administration. Without a budget, the live payroll set to go out at the end of the month would be cut, she said. This is not a scare tactic. This is based on a very real legal requirement. The legal requirement was ordered in 2003 when the California Supreme Court ruled that the state controller had no legal authority to pay wages in absence of a budget. Uh, his role is to process the payment that we give him, Jolly says. Or his role is to po- process the payroll that we give him, says Jolly. So in other words, he can't just pay the workers. He so has to have money to pay the workers with And But the state controller disagreed because he's a freaking dumbass. When do you hear this? I will not be following the governor's orders, John Chiang told uh, CNN Radio, calling the governor's actions dangerous. I don't understand why we would continue to impose greater hardships upon the good workers here in California and delay the economic recovery that needs to take place as soon as possible. Well, dumbass, because you don't have the money, that's why. You can't pay people out of thin air. This is the problem with bureaucrats. This idiot says, well, I'm going to pay them anyway. With what? Do you think California has a printing press where it can print up California dollars? If you don't have the money, moron, this guy should be asked kind of the week, but I'm going to hold off because I think there are some other candidates this week. Um... It is my responsibility to protect the state's pocketbook, Chang said. Really? Uh, And even though the governor is trying to fix a budget, he understands that he has had that opportunity. He still has that opportunity, and he should not put people in harm's way. Again, see, a government bureaucrat can't comprehend we are out of money. Can't get it through his frickin' thick skull. Can't comprehend unless we cut something somewhere, there's not enough money to do this with. Shane said he is willing to work with the governor to come up with a better solution. How about this, ass clown? If you don't get the money and the court says you can't pay it, you're going to pay the people minimum wage whether you like it or not. That's the result here. Uh, the wage cut directive would not affect the state employees who already have a contract, Jolly said. 37,000 employees are under a contract that protects them, and the state is currently in negotiations with its largest state employee union, the Service Employee International Union, she said. Oh, great. <laughs> the the SEIU. SC, oh, well, those are great guys. You know, those are the guys behind Obama. That union has as many as 95,000 workers. The governor's order is followed. The pay cut would take effect this month. According to Jolly, the workers will get their missed wages once a budget is enacted, she said. Okay. Welcome to Jack's World of Unintended Consequences. Let's say this goes through and let's say this actually happens and let's say that all the state workers get $7.25 an hour. In most states, and I have no reason to believe that uh, California is any different, if your employer cuts back your wages below the state's minimum for unemployment and you, ca- or, you or maximum for unemployment and you qualify for some level between where you get cut to and where that is, then you qualify for a partial unemployment claim. So let's say uh, your salary is cut back to minimum wage. Uh, what is the minimum wage salary on a forty-hour work week? I can't even remember. Say it's about I think two hundred and eighty, two hundred ninety dollars. And let's say the state's minimum or maximum for unemployment is four hundred dollars. And let's say you make so much money that if you were to become fully unemployed, you collect four hundred dollars a week. Well. That means that the employee can now go to the state unemployment office, file a partial claim, and collect some portion there of the Delta. So all of these people that get a pay cut are immediately, because most of these people are going to be fairly well paid. They're not going to be people that are getting a 10% pay cut. They're going to be people that are being paid very well, these state workers, uh, for what they do anyway. And they're going to, if they're smart, go do this. So what's that going to do? It's going to put an additional burden on the state budget. It probably would have been a hell of a lot smarter to say something like we're slashing wages by 20%. With a 20% wage slash, you'd get the same effect, not the same effect monetarily, but the same effect politically for a pressure move as the governor, and it would be harder to fight. And you'd probably qualify almost nobody for partial unemployment claims, thereby actually taking real pressure off the state budget. Because all this will do is funnel the responsibility over to unemployment, allow California to buy borrow more federal money to pay its unemployment claims, and put California deeper in hock to the nation. Great. So here we have an example of a governor that kind of made the wrong move, uh, and definitely a reason to be debt free and be a prepper. Because you can be a state worker and think you're safe. And you could next thing you know, you're making $300 a week. Uh, and you, you, you had been made, you know, after, before taxes, right? You still pay taxes and, you know, medical. If you have insurance costs in there and stuff, I mean, come on. What are you going to be left with out of a minimum wage check? You could, like that, it can happen. So I think it's a, it's a great reason for that. But we also have a bureaucrat that doesn't understand money. What a shock that this guy doesn't understand. He can't just send out a payroll and... If the state doesn't have the money, he thinks he can write a check against an account that doesn't have money. That's how stupid our government is, and that's why we need to prep. Let's take another question. Here's an interesting one. comes from Matt. Matt, how would you try to convince a monoculture farmer to switch to permaculture? It would seem that monoculture would make him more money in the near term, so I'm wondering what your sales pitch would be. Thanks, Matt. Um, well, first of all, I would not, let's say I have a farmer that has 80 acres. I would not say, Mr. Farmer, uh, I want you to start running your 80 acres as a permaculture operation right away and start saving the planet and eventually you'll not only be profitable but more profitable than you are today because he will take his pitchfork and stab me in the head, which is exactly what I deserve for not understanding his business processes and his debt. What I might do is say, look, Mr. Farmer, you care about your land as much as anybody else out here. What I would like to suggest is that maybe we work together and maybe we see if we can find some resources and some help to get this done. And we set aside 5%, 2%, you know, 2 acres to 5 acres of your land and begin putting in a permaculture system on that 2 to 5 acres. And we start growing some diverse crops that are going to give you uh, some diversity against the volatility in the market. Uh, we start looking at some longer-term producers, and we start putting in some perennials and uh, bushes and trees and things that will produce fruits and vegetables that are going to be outside of you know corn, wheat, soy, and canola, which is what you're living on right now because you've kind of been forced into that. In this small acreage, I want you to dedicate maybe 30% of it or more to growing things that are just biomass to build the soil on the area. I want you to look at using that tractor to put in some swales and some water harvesting and water retention systems, and I want you to give this a shot because that two acres can become your future, and if it works, it can grow to four, it can grow to six, and maybe your 80-acre farm becomes a more efficient 40-acre monoculture-style farm with better practices and 40 acres of permaculture, giving you diversity diversity and stability, and long-term value. But we'll get there slowly, one piece at a time. That would be my sales pitch. I wouldn't even begin to be like, hey, dude, stop doing your fertilizing and spraying, because it's not going to work, because the guy will be out of business and lose his farm before the conversion happens, and before the profit comes. And that's just reality. And it's it's this is why, you got to understand, the farmer's not the enemy in this crap. The farmer has been forced into this world. He's in hawk. He has, you know, $2 million worth of equipment that he has to make payments on. He probably has a million dollar mortgage on his farm or more. He has all these expenses. And, you know, the guy might, so there's farmers out there, folks, that by the end of the year have done $2 million in production. $2 million a year. You think, wow, that's a big business. And by the time they pay all their bills, they make less than a hundred thousand dollars profit, and by the time they pay their taxes and their, in, you know, and I'm not like when I say insurance, I don't mean insurance on the farm and the equipment. It's part of the business expenses. I mean like their self-appointed health insurance, and they pay everything else they make on a two million dollar farm less than a worker at Walmart that's been there for ten years might make. In the end, they work three times as hard. They feed tens of thousands of people. And they actually end up with about $50,000 a year in their pocket on a $2 million farm. And it happens all the time. And that's why more and more of them of that size go out of business and they get gobbled up by the multi-billion dollar um, conglomerates. So when you sell that farmer that's got 40 or 80 acres, that he's doing things the wrong way, his response, even if he's open, is, I can't do it any other way. So what you have to do is you have to find an acre for the guy to start with. And the odds are he's wasting an acre and get that acre started and let him see the life come into his soil and two years into it you won't have to do it he'll go out to a little place he'll stick his hands into soil that he's been running in a permaculture model and he'll crumble it and it'll be like little black crumbles and when he plows his field and that big dust cloud comes up he'll understand farmers are in touch with the farmers are the best people in the world man but you can't take a business model and flip it overnight it, it, there's so many, this is like our government. There's so many libertarian ideals that I aspire to. But if you made me president tomorrow, I can't initiate them all overnight. We have a system in place that we have to wean off of. Social Security is a disaster. It has to go. You can't just flip the switch and get rid of it. You've got so many people dependent on it now. You've got so many people in the twilight of their careers that it's all they're going to have. We can't just pull the plug on it. But we've got to create a system that makes it go away elegantly. And gives the younger generation their money back. And gives them an opportunity to not be dependent on a system like that in the future. To admit that it's a failure. But you can't flip the switch overnight. The the, the 88 year old lady you know that lives down the street. That lives on on her social security. You want her to starve? She shouldn't be there. That shouldn't be where she is. It should have never happened to her. The system did it though. The system has to be dismantled over time. And a monoculture farm works the same way. It has to be slowly converted. It can't be done overnight unless you're a multimillionaire and you walk in and you buy the farm outright and you close down operations and you don't need money and you, yes, then you can do it. But the farmer that's killing himself to make a living ain't going to happen. But if you can work with him to put in a greenhouse and do aquaponics and start making fish part of what he's cultivating, right, and start extending his growing seasons and, and start to put some cash flow out that's outside of that that world of mechanization out there slowly that farm can convert full or part way because look I don't want to completely dismantle monoculture farming or at least I don't like calling it monoculture when I talk about it the way that I would do it but I don't want to completely change commercial farming I want to improve it. So I'd like to see a lot more organic matter going into soil. I'd like to see fields rested for longer. I'd like to see all this freaking bioengineered crap and chemicals stop being sprayed on things. But we've got a process now in place where you can't just shut it off tomorrow, right? We can shut the GMO crops off. That's bullshit. We can't do that. But, you know, like the, the, the pesticides and stuff, we can't just turn that off tomorrow. The beneficials have to be brought back. The whole thing has to be slowly converted. And I would have no problem with a farmer that has 80 acres, let's say, or 40 and split 20-20, or 80 split 40-40, that has 20 of it done kind of as a food forest type situation, and then the the other 20 or 40 acres done with more traditional looking farming, but growing higher value crops... Doing more rotation. I don't, look folks, I had a guy recently all upset. Why don't you believe that fertilizer can be okay? I've said before, it's okay to have some fertilizer. I don't do it, and on a small scale, it's not necessary, but for some crops, you're gonna have to fertilize. And for some crops, synthetic fertilizers are kind of the way to give a boost. But how much? And is it the sole source of nutrient? See, the problem with most chemical fertilizers is when used to excess, they affect the natural process uh, between bacteria uh, in the soil and legumes that produce nitrogen for the soil. And once that process dies, the soil starts to die. That's the beginning of it all. But light amounts of commercial fertilizer is a boost. It's not organic anymore, but it sure beats the alternative of spray, spray, dump, spray, dump, spray, where you pick soil up and it's just like dust putting organic matter into the soil, putting manure into the soil, growing, you know, taking five acres and growing three crops of buckwheat in a a single summer and turning every single one of them right back into the soil and then planting a winter crop, a winter cover crop that may produce some yield, and then actually starting to farm that field again in the following spring and breaking up all of these things can improve the systems. We don't have to completely shit-can the, the amazing production that we get out of modern agriculture, but we're taking too much and putting back too little. So I would approach a farmer with that thought. I guess I got off on a tangent there because it's such a, uh, a passionate thing for me to talk about. Let's see if I can squeeze one or two more in before we wrap up today. Here's an interesting question. Love the show. Learn a lot every day. Is it, and it comes from James. James says, Is it possible to build from the ground up a 100% off-grid house, large enough for a family of five, for less than $150,000? I'm thinking a three-bedroom, two-bath, and 1,500 square feet minimum, solar, some wind, and good energy-efficient design. If not, how close do you think you could get to that goal while staying under the 150 dollars budget, assuming you already own land with well and septic? I definitely think it's possible. Don't ask me how to pull it off. Because uh, it's not something I've ever done, and you're going to get into so many different things. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to work out for you. Here's what I would say, though. Step one, go find the biggest beat-the-shit RV you can. Okay. Um, if you can get electricity to the RV, bring it in, so you don't have to worry about that. If not, uh, start out with some solar arrays that can later be moved to that structure that you're going to build, and live in that while you build. Because you're going to have to do so much of this work yourself, it's going to be unbelievable to pull it off at that budget. I would hire contractors to do the foundation, the framing, and the roofing at a minimum. I would take multiple bids. There's tremendous amounts of subcontractors out there starving to death right now. Live on site and be your own general contractor. You could probably get the sh- exterior walls, everything done by contractors as your own general for sixty to seventy thousand dollars. I think you could do that. Now you've got two big issues. You've got to get the, the energy system installed, and you've got to get the um, uh, the the interior portions of the property done, the kitchen fixtures, the bathroom fixtures, and things like that. How elegant do you want it to be? I mean, I've seen people put in a 1,500-square-foot house a $20,000 kitchen just from cabinets and and stuff like that. So obviously that's not going to fit your budget. So how much scavenging can you do? How many refurbished you know cabinets can you do? You may be able to go out and find all the cabinets for your kitchen uh, that have been wrecked out of a place and maybe spend $4,000 to have a professional come in and reface them. And that may save... $5,000 on on putting in a huge kitchen with lots of cabinets. You may be able to go out and find cabinets that have been wrecked out, put them in, and paint them. Uh, We used, in, in Pennsylvania, we had these cabinets in our house that we bought up there that were like this dark, I think it was supposed to be like a dark cherry, but I think there had been a kitchen fire. And they were just, they actually seemed to suck light in like a black hole. Like the kitchen always seemed dark because these cabinets were so dark and old that they just sucked light in. Didn't want to put a lot of money in it. We knew we were going to sell the house and leave. So we went out and we bought this paint, and it was like a paint with like like texture in it. Almost like little flecks of gravel and, and, and stuff. And it was like a off white with kind of like a couple different little colors of grays and blues and things like that in it. We painted the cabinets. We pulled all the hardware off, which were just gross looking. We soaked them in hot water and I rubbed them with Brasso and shined them like polished brass. I put them back on. Gorgeous. Gorgeous! That house sold in literally four hours, and we didn't have to replace the cabinets. And we probably would have got any additional money if we had replaced the cabinets. It's it's you know it's all about being creative. So if you can find out a lot of reclaimed materials and use some creativity and do a lot of the work, cabinets aren't that hard to install. Uh, countertops, I tell you, get a pro to do your countertop. Get your cabinets installed. And then have a countertop, because if you don't know how to do that, it won't ever be right. You know, then go do your own tiling and things like that. Yeah, you can get it done. But it's gonna take probably several years. You're not gonna do it for 150K by having someone show up and just do it for you. So that's why I say buy a big, beat the shit RV for as cheap as you can get, and you're gonna live in there while you build your house. Now here's the good news. When you're done, you either fix up the RV and keep it, and you use it as like a bug out vehicle. Or, you could probably sell it for what you paid for it. You could, If you buy the right RV at the right price, it's just it kind of hit the bottom, so it's not got rats in it, it's not completely falling apart, but it's not really a place you want to live, but people could use it for a deer camp or whatever, and you could suffer with it for a year while you build your house. When you sell that, you'll probably get within 10% of what you paid for it. You might be able to get more. If you do a few things to it while you're building your house. Only way I can see it being pulled off, I'm going to have Cam Mather on the show again soon. We'll talk to him about that number, because I know he built his place, and I think he did it for less than that. Uh, and he's almost 100% off-grid. I think he is off-grid, but he uses some generator power and stuff for backup. So, uh, And that's the other thing, is don't be adverse to using generator power. Um, you can generate a lot of fuel, or a lot of power for a long time with, let's say, $5,000. So you, you've got to be realistic about the budget and kind of stretch the, the goal long term. Let's see if I can cram one more in and we'll wrap up today. Here's one where I, it's like multiple choice and I kind of want to answer it with none of the above. Uh, Gunslinger from the forum says, Hey Jack, I'm headed to Grizzly Country in southern Wyoming on a family fishing vacation and wanted to know what one man's opinion of an effective bear stopper. I own a 45 Colt, a 308 Bolt Scout Rifle, and a single shot 20 gauge with slugs. Which would you carry out of those choices? Okay. For bear, uh, out of the rounds and effectiveness, I would carry a 20 gauge with slugs. And I know people that are big fans of 308, and hey, folks, you know, I'm a big fan of the 306, and their equivalent in the field would say, why not the 308? Overall, it's got more knockdown power, more energy, greater range, because he's worried about a bear trying to eat him, not hunt a bear. Uh, and the 308's a bit light for bear anyway. 20 gauge slugs, bleh, right? But, you know what a good foster slug out of a 20 gauge that's a big hunk of lead problem with the 20 gauge single shot I want one more I want more than one shot when a bear's coming at me the other problem with a bear coming at you and actually charging you and attacking you with any kind of a rifle uh, where you're gonna probably you know hold the shot off until that happens because you don't really want to kill a bear out of season, is now you've got the rifle where the bear can press the rifle or the shotgun against you. Uh, It's a situation where a handgun is a better implement. Also, you're going to go fishing. Uh, Is that what he said? No. He says he's headed to grizzly country, Southern Wyoming. I guess my other question then is, what are you going to be doing? Oh, it says fishing vacation. Okay, so if you're fishing, are you really going to be able to carry around effectively and have on your person at all times a 308 bolt action or a 20 gauge uh, shotgun? And I just don't think it's very practical. So even though I don't like it, I'm going to say that your most efficient use of anything here is going to be the 45 Colt. Because you can put that in a holster and you can have it with you at all times. And a 20-gauge leaning against a tree on the bank of the creek while you're in your hip waders up to your butt is useless. And maybe what you do is you take the 45 Colt and uh, one of the other weapons. But the handgun is going to be much more suited for what you're doing because you're not out there hunting. You're carrying fishing gear and stuff like that. Is it an effective bear stopper? Not really, but it's better than a sharp stick or a freaking you know nine weight fly line. You're gonna try to hit them with like a bull whip, and you know you do have six rounds you can carry there. I'm assuming it's a six shooter based on the caliber uh, and the cartridge. Um, six of those into anything kind of changes its mind. So, would I really consider this a good bear stopper? No, but it, again, it's the best thing that you have that's practical, uh, amongst them. If you happen to own one of the Ruger single sixes or something that can handle the higher pressure loads, you might want to go to like Buffalo, uh, whatever that is, Buffalo something. I'll try to look it up for you, put a link in the show notes. Uh, Buffalo Boar and get some of their higher hot loaded 45s. Those are, those are sledgehammers, man. Those are up there to, to, uh, to impact levels close to 44 magnum. People that deal with bears in like Alaska and, and, and whatnot would tell you that they would carry something like a 454 Casull as a minimum as a handgun for bears. You're also in Wyoming uh, and you're going into uh, Southern Wyoming. Not as many really big bears there, a lot less population of grizzlies. You're probably not that, you'll probably be lucky to see one as an observer. So it's probably not that big of a risk. So I'm going to go with 45 on that. With that, folks, I'm going to wrap up today. We went a little bit long, but on your question shows we usually do because I try to get as many of them as I can, and I know a lot of them I don't get in. But I'll tell you what, this is a great round of questions. I'm glad to be back. I was out for an extra day. It felt good, but I'm glad to be back here with you guys. i got a lot of great stuff coming this week. Uh, Mike Gazer, on Wednesday I'll actually be doing two shows with him. I'll be doing one on the economy. We'll get that out right away because he pointed some things out when we tried to get the show done last time that really scared the shit out of me about my false recovery being wrong. And we'll talk about that and what you can do and some other great questions about that. And I'm actually going to do two back-to-back interviews, and we'll stage one of the other interviews out in the future. Because even though Mike lives in like this sick house up in the Northeast, and he's got all this money, and he has a great big yacht and everything, because he knows what he's doing with money, uh, he's really a homesteader. And we'll talk about him as a homesteader in another interview, and that should be really cool. Again, i got a Soil Cube giveaway coming later uh, this week. On Friday, we'll be giving away two Soil Cubes and maybe do some other stuff. And uh, keep sending me your questions and your feedback and your ideas and your suggestions. If I haven't gotten to yet, I will try soon. Remember, always keep prepping, though. Be prepared for the mundane to the insane. You really need to be prepared because we don't know what's coming next. One day you could walk into that secure job and be told you're being cut to minimum wage as a cost-saving measure until a budget can be figured out, and that can happen to you whether you're in the government or not, or worse, you could be told you're part of a layoff. Those are the mundane, and they're disasters for families that aren't prepared. We could also end up in a day where the TV comes on and starts telling us about a pandemic that's real instead of the fake nonsense that we had last time. It can happen. It will happen at some point. There's a million things that can go wrong. Our government is destroying our economy. I'm going to be completely honest with you about that. They're destroying it. The only thing to debate is how long and what the consequences are going to be. That's it. Whether or not it's being destroyed, I don't believe that there's a case that can be made that the government's not destroying the economy. There's some dark times ahead, but they can be really opportunistic times for people that are prepared, that are living that better life today and being prepared to live that better life no matter what happens. This has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough
1: or even if they don't.